What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. We're back with the second part of my interview with Dr. Mason McDowell on how to do anesthesia for global outreach or humanitarian anesthesia, or remote, severely resource-limited anesthesia, or mission trips, or whatever you want to call it. In the last episode, Dr. McDowell unpacks his family's decision, him, his wife, and two young daughters, to sell everything they owned, learn French, and move to Bier Chad to live full-time and provide anesthesia services. At the time of their move, Dr. McDowell was serving as the Assistant Program Director for the Nurse Anesthesia Program at Western Carolina University in Asheville, North Carolina. And he was living the good life in a planned community and had an anesthesia practice that was anything but resource limited. In the previous show, Mason talked about why they went, what they did there, and why they had to emergently leave and return to the United States. In this episode, Mason shares advice for others who are interested in doing anesthesia for global outreach. We talk about what kind of qualifications you need, how to position yourself for success and prepare, and what kind of mindset you should undertake that kind of work with. I think both of these shows are absolutely fascinating and hold a wealth of inspiration and knowledge about why and how to do anesthesia in remote and underdeveloped communities. Our conversation was originally recorded in May of 2017. And the audio is not great. At the time, I was using a tabletop mic, and the room we recorded in had some weird acoustics and HVAC issues. So hang in there with the audio. Be sure to check out Mason's writing from his time in Chad. It's amazing. The stories he shares bring to life the day-turned-to-night grueling cases and heartbreaking moments of trying to make a difference in a community where the need is great and the resources so scarce. You can read more at whyweshouldgo.blogspot.com. Links in the show notes. As we jump in, I was just asking Dr. McDowell what his advice would be for SRNAs, anesthesia residents, or providers who are interested in short to long-term mission-based anesthesia. Here's Mason. You know, I, I think if you don't have a broad worldview, you know, travel can help with that. Reading can help with that. You know, staying educated in different ways can help with that. Um, you know, I definitely redefined the wants and the needs category uh, a lot more clearly. I think it's difficult to tell people to really share what the experience was like without them having seen it. But, you know, one of the things I, I remember relaying to you was student debt for those of you who are students or newly practicing anesthetists and you're still paying off. You know, if you have the opportunity to get out of debt, when an opportunity that I was presented with, when something like that would come up in your life, you have more options. And, you know, I, I told John whether it would be, you know, doing humanitarian work in anesthesia or if you just decide you want to drop out for a while and, you know, sail a sailboat around the world or be a, a whitewater outfitter, something like that. I mean, you, you can't do that if you have a lifetime of debt still to pay down. Pay off your debts and you will open so many doors and opportunities. It'll even create the chance that, I mean, you'll always be able to take jobs because you want jobs, not because you have to have. I think you just, you never want a job that you have to have. And when you're in debt, you are obligated to stay tethered to the work cycle. And I want you to be professionals and I want everybody to stay engaged in anesthesia. I think that's, you know, what you trained for and hopefully that's where your heart is. But, you know, there are so many things you can't do uh, if all you get to do is chase after the money, you know, so stay, keep that sort of perspective. Maybe you live modestly for a while or, or indefinitely so that you 
you have a little more flexibility when those opportunities sort of come through. Yeah. Uh, it's a little insidious. I think you, you, you're you a grad student and you're probably not living on a high quality side. You know, you're tired and you're hungry and you probably don't have the nicest house you've ever lived in. And then you graduate and you have, you have money and that presents a lot of opportunities for a nicer car and a nicer house and eating at all the nicest restaurants. And all, those are all, you know, reasonable that a lot of people do. But you know, you kind of creep it up your your quality of life a little bit and a little bit, and pretty soon you can, you know, you find a way to spend as much as you earn. But you mm-hmm. you used to live on a lot less, and if you if yeah. you continue that cycle after you graduate, live on a lot less, you know, there it just creates some some potential for you that you wouldn't have otherwise. I I think nothing like the freedom of being debt free. Uh, it, it has been really advantageous for me, and you know, I was in the Navy, so my graduate school was paid for. And then I was faculty at the university, and I found a way to get a, my doctorate paid for through another scholarship. So I've always been pretty fortunate not to have student debt, and um, you know that's not always easy for everybody. I recognize that I just was pretty fortunate in the ways my path has gone along. But as quickly as you can, man, when you're when you're done being in debt, it's it it it's pretty liberating. Yeah, I have to say. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears back to talking to people out there that may be thinking about um, either long-term commitments to overseas work, short-term trips. What are some things that uh, you could give them in terms of pearls of preparing and wrapping their head around doing some of those experiences? Well, there are many organizations out there and faith-based or not is not necessarily material. You'll choose what the right path is you know, for you if you're interested. I, I definitely encourage short-term trips and and whether it be actual hands-on and doing it, there are so many organizations, particularly you know mission organizations, that that want people to go for a special clinic. They're going to do a cleft palate clinic or a fistula repair clinic or orthopedic clinic, where you can go and, and do exactly what you're used to doing with very very similar equipment and medications at a higher sophisticated level. But you can do it in a country that really needs you. So it's a way of stepping out of your comfort zone, but still having some familiar things around you and. Um, or you can do it kind of like I did it, and I found an organization that was fairly well organized and had some degree of infrastructure, but the level of anesthesia um, was just at a, at a world difference. Um, and, and I think if you don't have to do that alone the first time, it's ideal. Mm-hmm. I was pretty smart, I think, to find a course that could teach me how to do anesthesia safer in a developing country yeah. like that. Um, Doctors Without Borders has does I mean amazing things all over the world and and I had looked at them even to try to find a way to retether my life now that I'm back in America so that I could do work with them. You need a larger time commitment. Usually it's four to six weeks for a CRNA, but they are doing really cool things in a lot of a lot of countries that are in desperate need. In Syria is pretty. It's in the news a lot now. I was trying to find a way to get into Syria last fall and there were no organizations that were bringing Westerners in which was a pretty straight indicator to me that I shouldn't try too hard um, because it just, it just wasn't safe. And I'm not, I wasn't trying to get killed, but I was looking like the Syrian American Medical Society sends surgeons over to do work there. But if you're just an American and you don't have dual citizenship, it, that avenue's not open right now. It's not safe. But the point of that is there are a lot of countries that are, are in desperate need of a really safe anesthesia providers. You could go be either the hands-on guy or you can do like what I did in Nepal, where I was really supervising other people and helping raise their level of knowledge and understanding. And you can't do that easily in a few weeks, but you'd be surprised. You just lay one or two pearls 
on somebody, it changes the way they, they practice uh, for, mm-hmm. forever, possibly. What do you think? I mean, you've seen, you've seen other school faculty come on short-term trips. You've seen graduate students come on short-term trips. What do you think some of the common barriers are or fears, anxieties, those kind of things? You know, I, I would think, you know, language, security, mm-hmm. food, uh, getting malaria. I mean, the common anxieties for people traveling <laughs> on these trips. Does everyone need to learn a, a, a different language? Can you do these things as an English speaker? What you, you can. English is is so prevalent now. It didn't happen to exist really at all in Chad, but a lot of the places that I, that I've been otherwise, English is is pretty prevalent, and that's that's one of the great things. Or because you're just a short term volunteer in a place, many times they'll have an English speaker that can translate the local language to you. So it's not not nearly the same degree of barrier. I wouldn't necessarily invest a lot of time in learning another language unless you really were going to get to apply it. Because I'll tell you, I studied French for a year, but my real education started when I got there. Yeah. And that's kind of like anesthesia school, right? Like you think you know a lot. There's nothing like getting out there and practicing the day after you graduate or the month after you graduate. You really learn a lot your first year in anesthesia school. Um, I mean, in, in anesthesia practice. Right. So that was the truth with language. You really need the immersion piece. Um, so if you had some target country, sure, go ahead and start investing right. in the language. But I wouldn't let that be a barrier. It's Most of it is the things that are just in your mind. You don't want to get kidnapped. You don't want to get killed. You don't want to get malaria, all those things. And, you know, if you travel to a malaria endemic country, you might get malaria. It's, it's going to be okay. I mean, read about it. You get over it. If it's only a two-week trip, probably play it safe and eat the right things and drink clean water. Sure. We started out real paranoid and we're the perfect Western visitors when we moved to Chad. And then eventually, you got to live there, you know, and you got to live. Right. You got to live a little. So we got more and more experimental in the things that we'd get exposed to. But I I wouldn't let those things hold you back. What I I would say is um, investigate the organization you're going to spend time with, though. You know, do they have evacuation plan for you? Do you need health insurance or medical coverage insurance while you're there, you know, will they provide anti-malarial or, you know, what type of medications are available to you? You know, what kind of anesthesia equipment do they have? You know, it's good to prepare for what you're getting into, or is there a good resource in the country? Are you, like when I went to Nepal, the anesthesiologist left before I got there. Mm. So I had no turnover. Like that wasn't exactly perfect. But if you're going as a short term to somewhere else, there's a good chance somebody's already in country and they'll be there to guide you while you're there. Right. You showed up to Nepal. Alone. And, and there was no one. They didn't no say like, here's the office works. and here's the drugs and oh, here's the whatever. Man. So that was that was not optimal. Now, there was a couple of guys that, you know, this man was supervising and it all worked out fine. But that's sure. not the ideal turnover. You right. like a little report, you know, on, on what you're getting into. Um, other organizations, though, I mentioned Doctors Without Borders. I know that um, health volunteers overseas, HVO, they do great work. And what they need is your expertise. You go to a country for two weeks, usually it's two weeks, and you educate them. You teach them, and you know you work it out ahead of time what their needs are. You don't just yeah. come with your favorite PowerPoint. You may have an expertise that you can talk on while you're there, but you know you work out something, and you can, you just share you know clinical realities. You know, not just a pathophysiology book report, but you know, how do you do it safely and what's the best evidence for doing this type of anesthesia? You could be a great resource in so many countries just with what you already know. Yeah. I've got a couple more questions for you. Talk to us a little bit about that philosophy on not sweeping in with your best ideas, not sweeping in to be the ultimate resource, but how to integrate yourself as a resource mm-hmm. 
while helping elevate what is already going on and what will be going on after you are not there? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question and a great point. You know, it's difficult, I think, to come in from a country like America where you feel like you're at the top of the pyramid and you've got so much knowledge and information. and They're so lucky to have you. You know, mm-hmm. you, if you're not careful, you can kind of fall into that trap. But really, I think you need to be careful to sit back and, and observe the culture and figure out why why aren't they doing things on, a, on the next level? Are there barriers? Can they just not get the medications? Or is there, you know, there, there could be a host of reasons they haven't elevated or they just haven't had access to, to books or to the internet. I mean, things that we take for granted. Um, so really sort of seek to understand the culture before seeking them to understand you. I think right. is, is I, I would say, don't, um, don't necessarily go and be the everything for them. Um, but but watch and observe, and then start adding in little pieces of information that that they can actually use in a practical way. Um, you know, the, the the savior complex is is really not going to be helpful probably anywhere you visit. Yeah. How do you not get overwhelmed with the need from an emotional standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint? You're you know, you're you're there with your two daughters and your wife. And you're taking on all of these different roles. You're seeing needs pop up all over the place that you didn't anticipate. And, and even just from an anesthesia and a medical standpoint of not being able to provide resources that could sustain someone's life, that could treat someone, that could get someone to a point of recovery. How do you deal with that overwhelming need as a provider, as a husband, as a father? Uh, I, I think we probably did it badly. I think we were overwhelmed many times. And uh, that's probably the nature of of humanitarian work. I think some people are probably good at distancing themselves from it. You know, one of the reasons I, I went and did it is because I think I felt so attached to it, you know, from a spiritual and just an emotional connection with people who have such a desperate need. And I felt like if I don't go, who was going to go? I mean, who would be crazy enough to do this? You know, the answer was, I guess I was. Um, so we were overwhelmed uh, and we did probably a lot of things wrong. I could probably write a book on, on how not to do it also, mm-hmm. which was you know, one of the great, <laughs> one of the great life lessons I think that we picked up there. I wrote a lot. Uh, that was my sort of catharsis. I would come home from many, many challenging, emotionally sad days. I mean, I I saw more death in a year and a half than I had seen in a entire career in healthcare. Wow. Um, and I worked in an ICU. I mean, you know, death is just sort of the reality of healthcare. You know, in the United States, but uh, there it was just so. Many times it felt like this could have been avoidable, you know, particularly when it's children or the vulnerable, you know, the women, abused women, or you know, there was just a lot of ways that were challenging. And, you know, I, I admit to crying and I'm, I'm not the toughest guy in the world, but I'm not a crybaby. You know, I don't cry a lot, but I, I cried a bit in Chad mm. and um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it, it definitely felt like it, it helped a little bit with me. And the other thing was just writing. I would come home and, and write a blog post. And yeah. sometimes it would go up on the blog, and sometimes I would just file it away. It was a little too raw, and I could kind of hold on to it. Maybe one day we'll publish it as a book. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. a little bit lazy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. How not to get overwhelmed, though. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. How did you play? How, how did you, I mean, you're there to do all this work, but I'm sure you and your family, I mean, how, what did you do to, to just relax and, and be a family? Yeah, you know, we kind of went uh, old school. We, we 
we didn't have a lot of technology there, so my wife and daughters liked playing cards and board games. Mm. People would send us packages from America with, you know, sort of rudimentary things that, that we don't really use a lot now that everybody's electronic in in the developed world, but we we would do that. We would we would take walks. I mean we bought a row of tomatoes from a guy that was growing them in the village and at the when we bought them we didn't realize that meant we had to also pick them. And, uh, you know, when it's tomato season, they come fast and furious. So we would take a walk every evening out to our tomato row, which was, you know, a 20-minute walk to get to it. But we'd have this pack of children that would surround us and follow us. Yeah. And we'd have so much fun. We'd pick the tomatoes. And before we come home, we'd give them all away or almost all of them away. <laughs> um, you know, so just kind of getting out and really walking. And even though we'd been there a while, it was still kind of – everything was still a little bit new. The dirt – the smell, what sunset looked like, what fruit bats looked like flying through the sky, mm-hmm. and um, watching the hippos at the river. I mean, there was a river not too far away, so I yeah. I take the motorcycle out and and take a drive in the evening. Um, all those things were just a distraction from life at the hospital. And there were other there were other Americans and and even local you know the Chadians that we became friends with. I think relationship was infinitely more important to us there. Than it is in America, where in America you can kind of you know come home and you drive your car into the garage and close the door behind you and you can wow. plug into the internet and you're you're just fine and dandy. But there, uh, there was a lot more interaction, even amongst our family. You know, we were just connected in a much tighter way because you know we needed each other. I wow. think a lot more. Has that it was, changed since you've been back? In some ways, I think we have recently started struggling again with the internet and how mm. it's a distractor for so many people, even my colleagues at the hospital, but I mean, in my own home, trying to remind each other, let's stay, let's make eye contact. Let's, let's talk about our day. Yeah. Uh, those things, you, I feel a lot like it's easier to be independent in, in America and in Chad. It was, you were ob- obligatory to be interdependent. You would, you would converse a lot more and rely on each other, you know, to, mm. to help lift you up. Yeah, and uh, and just to make you feel, you know, like you were you were still connected. Yeah, yeah. But uh, before we hit record, you were sharing some interesting stories on like reintegrating back into Western civilization, the the ORs and surgeons being frustrated at <laughs> you know seemingly minuscule things. Maybe just speak uh, in closing for a few minutes on what that transition back to the states that that was unexpected, that was mm-hmm. rather a rapid turnaround. I'm sure you had. Numerous things in the air that you were working on developing and chatting in within a week, you're back in the States. So how has that transition been for you and your family? Yeah, well, I mean, after unexpectedly being evacuated, we didn't really have a lot of time to mentally prepare. Obviously, it was just a matter of days and we were back home. And it, it did take a period of time to discover that what I was experiencing, I think, is what they call reverse culture shock. Um, you know, it was hard to come back to America and, and this is such a great and comfortable and easy place to live, but it felt really awkward after having lived in a place that was so, you know, simple and rudimentary, but to come home and have paved roads and have electricity and air conditioning. And we, I told you the story about being back in the operating room. I mean, there was a period of time where I was trying to figure out what we were going to do in America. And when we had decided we're going to stay in America, the next logical thing is I need a job. It's pretty expensive to be unemployed in America. So when I started working, and it was only a few days back in the operating room, and there was a surgeon that was, you know, wearing a nice necklace and nice earrings, and she was complaining about how hot it was in the operating room and how there wasn't enough light, you know, and it was 63 degrees, and we had 
10 trillion lumens of light in this operating room, and I had every great anesthesia equipment known to man in the room with me, and I just thought, lady, you need to get a reality check. And it wasn't her fault, I told you. It's, you know, this is, she's accustomed to everything being perfect, and right. I had come from a place where imperfection was the norm, and I just, I was a little disgusted, and I had to get over that period. And that was my own fault. I mean, it, maybe not fault, but I just had to, I just had to remember that it's okay. It is okay to be in a great country, and it is okay to have an easier, comfortable life and to have technology. But it took me a period of time, and I mean a long period of time, to transition back to all of the normal facets of life. I mean, it was it was easy a year wow. to fully get back into it and to to feel like I was kind of a whole person again and remind myself that every patient here deserves good care just because they're not dying from a tropical disease didn't mean they didn't need safe anesthesia. They did. Um, and and I, I love my career here. Uh, and I love it again, just like I loved it before I left. But transitioning back, I missed so much about about being in a desperate place. It, it was it felt uncomfortable being so comfortable in America. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's super fascinating. Anything else you want to share about your time in Chad, uh, your time on short-term trips to provide anesthesia, things that would help other people prepare, get ready, go, come back? Yeah, I mean, if you're in anesthesia and you're interested in doing this, there are a lot of nurse anesthesia programs or anesthesiology departments at, at different hospitals that routinely do, do trips overseas. So you don't have to be like me where I kind of did it into the great unknown, you can go with a, a group of people who kind of know what they're getting into and they can they can guide you along the way. But trust me, no matter how long you've been out, whether it's a year or 20 years, you have so much to offer to countries that, that really don't have the same level of expertise or knowledge that you have. It's either putting your hands on and doing and letting them watch you or, or teaching them just casual talking. It doesn't mean PowerPoint, although it mm -hmm. could be. Um, Find a way to, to get engaged, you know, and, and maybe your state association or even the AANA can help plug you in or, or, or local churches or, again, those local anesthesia departments where they, trust me, somebody is going somewhere and you can find a way to kind of get involved. But don't let the, the fear of the unknown, the unknown hold you back. Um, it's achievable. I mean, it really is. No matter where your level is in expertise, if you've been out a year or more, you probably could be a tremendous resource and it doesn't have to be, you know, all in like we happen to do. Even the short-term trips can be tremendously valuable, I think. Yeah, to both you and those you serve. Yeah, and that's actually maybe to, to close on that is I, I feel like I've grown a lot. I've added a new dimension, you know, to my personality and to my life and to my even my clinical expertise. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable improvising in a safe way. Um, and I've, I've just learned a lot of new tricks. So, you know, I've, I've changed philosophically. I've, you know, the wants and needs category. I feel, you know, I'm a different person than I was before I went. But I didn't go there expecting that. I just went to go do anesthesia. And I think, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't have to change your life per se. But the, that little two-week trip that you, you go to, you might change somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the life that you actually could be part of saving, that person could go on to be the next great teacher or the next president of that country. You just don't know what the ripple effect is. I would just say, stay involved. You know, right. do, so do something. Don't, you know, what's the expression? Don't just do something, stand there. Is sort of the opposite of what we want you to do. Mm -hmm. We want you to, don't just do nothing. You know, do something. Get out there and, and, and do it. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> great. 
Dr. Medal, thank you so much. Uh, can people get in touch with you directly or can they, is your blog still active? Can they read your stories? Yeah, you know, my, my blog is not super active because I'm not traveling currently. Um, you can always look at it. The, the blog is why we should go dot blogspot.com I'll yeah. put that in the show notes and then you know you can look for me on Facebook uh, I, I still have a picture of me and my scrubs you know standing in, the, in, in front of the hospital with my family in, in Chad uh, my name is Mason McDowell uh, I, I would love to, to hear from anybody if you have questions and you know I want to make this a sort of a lifelong engagement for myself and if I can help other people do that if you want to come along with me on a trip you know, I certainly see no reason I won't continue to do this several times a year. And, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll have a small impact wherever we go. Yeah. Where are you headed next? Do you have anything in mind? I don't have anything on the map. I've kind of burned a lot of my vacation time this sure. year. I actually would love, really like to go back to Chad. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of countries, and uh, it's kind of funny. that Once you start doing it, you make connections with other people, and the opportunities really kind of keep proliferating. So. Yeah. I don't know yet. Send me an email and we'll see. <laughs> I can drag you along with me. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Mason McDowell, thank you so much. It's been fascinating chatting with you today. And uh, I hope to have you back on the podcast for some future installment. One never knows. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah. So, if Mason's story stirred up something in you or awoken a little voice that's telling you to go, listen, pay attention to that and let it grow. It may not be Africa, it may not be full-time, but there's people who need what you're able to give. Let me know what's stirring by dropping a comment on Instagram or shoot me an email, and I'll see you next time.